0: I hope we do at least, to have a fuller way to praise you than just with our words. But we use them now, as as inadequate as they are, to praise you, Father, for your sovereignty over all that exists, for your sovereignty, too, over our lives. And we praise you for, of course, salvation through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you for the security of that salvation once we have truly, genuinely submitted ourselves totally To you, And we praise you, Father, for the steadfastness of your character, that you do not change, you're not inconsistent, but that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, Lord, we do thank you for the precious promises that you have given to us in your word. We thank you for the hope of a better tomorrow, even here on earth, for the hope of a a great reunion in heaven that we will one day have with all of our redeemed loved ones who are temporarily separated from us. And, Father, we thank you for the kingdom, which is soon, I believe, to exist on this very same earth, a world without Satan, without demons, without overt sin, and without the curse upon nature. What a day we have, Father, to look forward to when the Lord Jesus Christ himself will truly physically reign as King of kings and Lord of lords on this same planet. Father, that is what we're going to talk about this morning, as you well know, and I pray that you would bless our time here, that you would just make us so thankful that we have been in the house of the Lord today and opened up your word. We love you, and we just pray now that you will um, be with us in the hour to come, for we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, in our lesson this morning, which is on Revelation chapter 20, which I have entitled, as you can see up here, a world theocracy and a white throne, we are going to begin with an overview on the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Christ here on earth, probably because there is so much information given to us in the scripture about this future golden age here on planet Earth. I mean, if you were really to do a study on the Millennial Kingdom, it could easily be a year's study. There is so much in the Old Testament primarily about the Millennial Kingdom. Well, probably for that reason, the Holy Spirit did not inspire the Apostle John to really record any details, hardly at all, about the Millennial Kingdom in the book of Revelation. However, since it is at this point in time in our chronology as we are going through Revelation that the millennial kingdom does occur because we've finished with the tribulation, the Lord has appeared and he's come in his second coming. So it is at this time chronologically that the kingdom would occur and it does occur because it is mentioned briefly in these chapters, in these verses. Because of that, we are going to begin our outline this morning by giving a great millennium. Review. What I'm going to do is just very quickly go through some facts about the Millennial Kingdom. I do have many, many pages in your notes for this week, so what I do not have time to say, all of it is in your notes. I tried to give you just as much information as I could without writing a book for you um, in the notes, so make sure you do read them. And you'll have homework questions on the Millennial Kingdom, and that might help you to learn a little bit more about it as well you can see our outline we'll talk about the great millennium review then we'll look at the guilty monster removed that of course is satan then we'll talk about the glorified multitude which reigns during the kingdom the grand mighty resurrection god's momentary revolution this one is just incredible and then finally we'll end with godless man's reckoning as we look at the great white throne judgment there is a larger body of prophetic scripture devoted to the subject of the Lord's 1,000-year reign here on earth than any other subject. Did you know that? More of, That's why I said it could easily be a whole year's study. Therefore, chapter 20 of Revelation deserves and demands our attention because although this chapter does not describe the details of this kingdom, its duration, how long it will be for the very first time in the Bible, is told to us repeatedly in the first seven verses as being 1,000 years long. And for this reason... The kingdom of Christ here on earth is known as the millennium. It's a Latin word, mille, M-I-L-L-E, means thousand, and annum is the word for year. So it means literally 1,000 years. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, God gave to us, through the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the history of the world in the representation of a large multi-metallic statue— This large man-like image stood tall and proud, but its end came, for those of you who have ever studied Daniel, you know that the end of this statue came when a stone, cut out without hands, fell from heaven onto what part of the image? Its feet and its ten toes, and this caused the entire image to come crashing down, fall into many minute pieces, and the wind came along and totally blew it away so that absolutely nothing remained and then that stone grew into a great mountain which filled the entire earth the statue according to daniel's interpretation of this dream which was god inspired of course the statue represented the great world empires the gentile world empires which would rule this world the head of gold was of course babylon The chest and the arms of silver Silver symbolized the reign of the Medo-Persian Empire. Then the belly and the thighs represented the Grecian Empire, and the legs of iron represented the mighty Roman Empire of ancient days. Well, the feet with the ten toes made of iron mixed with clay, don't have time to talk about that right now, but they represented the yet future revived Roman Empire, which we have talked a lot about this year. And... um, of course when Daniel gave this or when King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and Daniel gave the interpretation of it it everything was yet future except what kingdom what empire Babylon because Daniel was living in the empire of uh, when Babylon was ruling but all the rest of this was prophetic history it had not yet occurred But as we know from history now, with hindsight, all of it happened exactly as Daniel had predicted. Well, the stone cut out without hands, that speaks of a supernatural origin, represents the Lord Jesus Christ, who, of course, was born without a human father because he was born of the Holy Spirit, and that is because the Lord Jesus is God. The stone came from heaven, and it crushed this colossus image On its feet with ten toes, as we said, and the entire kingdom of man perished and vanished from sight. Now, this prophetic dream, therefore, foretold of the end of man's day when man would rule over the world. And this end of man's day will come. During the time when the empire represented by the the feet and the ten toes will be in existence, and we know that that will be the ten-nation confederacy under the ruleship of the Antichrist. And that then, which was prophesied by Daniel and also by many other Old Testament and New Testament prophecies as well, ...is the kingdom of God. What this prophecy was predicting was the kingdom of God, or the millennial kingdom, which comes by way only, by way of miraculous intervention from Christ himself. He is the crushing stone from heaven. So you see this Daniel chapter 2 prophecy supports a pre-millennial view of the scripture... Now, we talked about the different views. There's the three primary views of the millennial kingdom are the premillennial view. There's the amillennial view, which is the most prevalent today um, in Christendom. And then there is the postmillennial view that's almost extinct today. But the one that we have been teaching throughout our study is the premillennial view. This is the view or the school of interpretation which teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ will return from heaven before. That's why it's called pre-millennium. He comes before the millennium. The second coming is before the millennium, just as you can see up here in this transparency. And that, in fact, it will only be his second coming and his presence here on earth which will make the millennial kingdom a reality. He is going to be the one. Who will end the battle of Armageddon? He will come from heaven and he will crush all those who are gathered together to fight against him and to, to uh, initially to annihilate Israel. He will be the one who will then judge and purge the world of all the wicked. And he will have the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan himself removed. Premillennialists, you see, view the events of chapters 19 and 20 of the book of Revelation, as well as the sequence of events which were given by the Lord himself in the Olivet Discourse. Over the summer, if you have never studied the Olivet Discourse, it would be a wonderful thing to study. We have tapes that you can order. By the way, if you want to order anything for the summer, let me know as soon as possible so I can start working on them. But the Olivet Discourse, is, it talks about all that we've been studying this year, and, um, and it's really helpful to, to study it. But in the Olivet Discourse, we have the chronology exactly the same as we have been looking at it in the book of Revelation. So in other words, pre interpret literally the chronological order of the end times. So, after the tribulation, a premillennialist says after the literal seven years of tribulation, then comes Christ's second coming, then the end of the battle of Armageddon, then the millennial kingdom, which is, of course, followed by the eternal state, represented here by the word eternity. So premillennialists teach a literal earthly reign of literally 1,000 years duration. They believe, as I do because I am a premillennialist, that the literal approach to scripture is absolutely necessary in order for God to keep his covenant promises made to Israel. If the millennium, the 1,000-year kingdom, is not to be taken literally, then either is a whole lot of scripture in the Old Testament about the millennium to be taken um, seriously. Post-millennialists and amillennialists, I have all about them in your notes. You can read, I refute their positions, but essentially you have to spiritualize a great deal of the scripture in order to be either one of them. Well, there are at least eight different names other than the millennium given for this kingdom of, of God on earth. It it is called in Scripture the world to come. It's called the kingdom of heaven. It's called the kingdom of God. It's called the last day. It's called the regeneration because everything will be regenerated. The earth will return to basically what it was like in the Garden of Eden. It's also called the times of refreshing, the restitution of all things. And it's called the day of Christ as well. Mm -hmm. Now, in the um, Old Testament, we have a number of pictures of Or types, you know how we've talked about types, prophetic types, of the millennial kingdom. We have a lot of them. For example, there is the Sabbath. The Sabbath means rest. God in his wisdom set aside a Sabbath or a period of rest following a certain period of work. And he himself set the precedence for this, didn't he? By creating all that is in six days and then resting himself on the seventh. Israel was instructed to do the same thing in the Ten Commandments she was also instructed to do the same thing after six work weeks not only was she to work six days and rest on the seventh but she was to do this with six work weeks and then rest on the seventh after six work months and after six work years and then we've talked in the past about also the jubilee year these are all periods of sabbath rest well it's interesting to know that a lot of the early christians in the new Te- you know the early church actually taught Based upon the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, which God commanded his people to pattern in their own work lives, well, the early, a lot of the early Christians taught that there would be 6,000 years of human history given to man upon earth. This was way back in the beginning. All right? And they said, after this 6,000 years of human history, there would be a 1,000-year period of rest. They based this on God's own pattern. So, it's only really been with a growing acceptance of evolutionism and the false teaching that humans have been around for millions and millions of years, that this teaching from the early church has been almost ignored in Christendom. However, now that we are approaching the end of the 6,000 years of human history, you know, according to the Bible, man has only been on planet Earth for 6,000 years. Now we're getting close to the end of the sixth millennium. So there has been... uh, a real interest gaining among conservative premillennial Christians especially in the fact that there are so many other indications that we may very well be nearing the day the end of the day of man and the beginning of the day of Christ there's a real renewed interest that maybe something is about to happen maybe we are now, of course, we don't know that that 6,000 years is going to end in the year 2000 because there's been some calendar problems, etc, But we may very well, according to God's pattern, we may very well be nearing the time when the millennial kingdom will be a reality. I believe in my heart that, that we are based on everything God has ever done in sevens. It just seems like it, it could really be a reality. I think we're living in the most exciting times that man has ever lived. They're the most depressing in many ways, but they're also very exciting if you're a Christian. Well, the character and the conditions of the millennium are described in many, many Old Testament pa- uh, passages, particularly the mi- minor and major prophets have a lot of about the Millennial Kingdom. I'm going to run through some of these things real quickly for you. There's going to be no wars. It's going to be a time of peace, just to tell you a little bit about the Millennial Kingdom. No wars at all under the theocratic reign of Christ, the Prince of Peace. Um, It will be a time of absolute joy. There will be fullness of joy. It will also be a time when um, Earth is filled with a holy kingdom because it will be ruled over by a holy king and the curse will be totally removed the city of Jerusalem from which Christ will reign will be um, a holy city the temple will there will be a millennial temple it will be a holy temple because again it will be filled with the glory of God as Christ himself is there the subjects of the kingdom will be holy because initially at least all those who enter into the kingdom will be saved they will be born again uh, it will be a glorious kingdom in which God's glory will be fully manifested in His Son. The King Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, will minister to personal needs, so there will be a fullness of comfort in the kingdom. It, uh, let's see, justice. It will be a period of justice. The administration of absolute perfect justice will be in existence and available to every individual from the Judge Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be an unparalleled teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit during the kingdom. Knowledge and teaching will come from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As I said, there will be the removal of the curse. The original curse which God placed upon the earth will be removed so that there will be abundant productivity on earth. Animal creation will be changed so that it will lose its venom and its um, wildness. Animals will no longer be carnivorous. Sickness will be removed, all sickness, there will be no sickness, and even death will be removed except for when it's absolutely necessary in dealing with any overt sin. Otherwise, all sickness and death itself will be removed. I read in one of these passages that a man, when he's 100 years old, will still be called a child. Freedom from oppression. There will be no social, political, or religious oppression or any prejudices at all. None of those things will be allowed in the kingdom. There will be no mental or physical retardation. There will be no mental illnesses or physical deformities of any kind during the kingdom. Now, those who go into the kingdom, I've had some questions from some of you a little bit confused about this. We'll talk more as we progress through the morning. But those who initially go into the kingdom, whether they're saved Jews or saved Gentiles, will go into the kingdom with their human body. So they will reproduce and have children during the millennial kingdom. And these children who will be born born in the kingdom, will need, just like you and I, they will need to be saved. They will need to accept personally Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. All right, so there will still be unsaved people because, as we'll find out, a lot of these children born during this thousand-year period of time will not accept Christ. It's amazing to think about even, you know, that he's right there and they can see him and how wonderful everything is, but a lot will not accept him. But those in their physical bodies will reproduce, the, the world will be replenished, the population will be replenished. There will be a perfect labor system, there will be a fully developed godly industrial system and in society, as well as a very fruitful agricultural system to provide dr- jobs and meet the physical needs of all of the king's subjects. There will be a perfect labor system. There will be no want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Nobody will go without their, their needs. There will be an increase of light, both solar and lunar, and this will probably be the cause for the productivity agriculturally, and we talked before about how there will probably be another water vapor canopy over the earth again, because all the oceans will evaporate and reform that water vapor called the firmament, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, and this will, it will put everything into like a terrarium so that things will grow beautifully, big, lush, lots of food, and this will also be a reason why men will live so long. There will be unified worship. All the world will unite in the worship of God and Christ. Even those who are born who are unsaved will have to worship him externally because uh, that will just be mandatory. Even though they might be unsaved in their hearts, they will be forced to worship outwardly because no other religions, no other gods, no other idols, no other cults of any kind will be allowed. And also, it's interesting to know that that which characterizes much of the millennial age is not viewed as just temporary. It's not just viewed as being for the millennium only, but it is seen to continue on into the eternal state, into the new Jerusalem and the new earth. Except for the fact that there will be nobody in the eternal state in a human body. Everybody then will be in glorified bodies and no one will be reproducing. So the children you have on this earth are the only children you will ever have. Now, someone might very well wonder why it is that God has uh, foreordained and planned on even having a 1,000-year kingdom here on earth in the first place. Why doesn't he just take everyone who is saved... You know, after the tribulation, why doesn't he just take them right on into the eternal state? Why does there need to be a millennial kingdom with Christ reigning at all? Other than the fact, of course, that God has promised this throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And he does have to keep his promise. But why did he promise it in the first place? What is the purpose for it? Well, there are a number of purposes for it. But a very important purpose will be for God to prove a point. And that point is this, that regardless of man's environment, regardless of his heredity or anything else, mankind apart from God's grace will inevitably fail. The millennial kingdom will be God's answer to the excuses that men have used down through the ages for the cause of evil in this world. This will be God's 1,000-year answer to all those millions of people who have claimed, and you hear this today, that man is basically good, but that it is his environment and his circumstances which have caused many of his problems. The millennium will be the final testing of mankind under absolutely ideal, perfect conditions. If man is basically good, then he could certainly prove it, couldn't he, during, of all times, the millennial kingdom. However, as we'll learn in this chapter, man is an incurable sinner apart from Christ's work of grace in his heart. Throughout the ages, ever since man's creation... God has given man different situations here on earth. These are called economies, different economies, different dispensations in which to live. But man has failed in every single one of them. In the beginning days, as I just mentioned, it was an age of innocence. There was no knowledge of evil at all. And yet man failed, didn't he? Even in that wonderful, perfect environment without any sin, without any knowledge of evil, man failed by his willful disobedience. We have the record of this in Genesis chapter 3. Then there was the age when man's God-given conscience was his law. But again, man failed with universal corruption, and God had to send the global flood on the earth to save any godly seed at all. Genesis chapter 6. Then there was the age of human government. And when it ended with the initiation, as we've been talking about, of humanism and false religion at Babel, Genesis chapter 11, man again proved that he was... An incurable sinner. He failed. Then there was the age of law. And do you know how the age of law ended? With man crucifying their own creator, the lawgiver himself. Then the age that you and I live in is the age of grace. This is the church age. And yet, how have we learned it will end? As, as we see it happening all around us in Christendom. The church age, the age of grace, will end in worldwide apostasy. First Timothy chapter 4. And then we have the tribulation age, when God will be sending divine judgments from heaven to try to get man's attention. And yet it will end with worldwide worship of God. The Satan-possessed Antichrist, and men gathered together at the Battle of Armageddon to actually challenge the returning Son of God himself. So under each system, each economy which God has developed, what has man done? He's failed, and he's failed miserably. So God will demonstrate to man once again his own depraved nature, apart from himself, apart from God, Because in the millennial kingdom, he is going to give mankind a perfect environment with a perfect king reigning. And so that man cannot blame Satan for anything at all, Satan is going to be bound for the duration of the kingdom. Therefore, the millennium will be the final testing period of mankind before the beginning, then, of the eternal state. Now, this is not a testing for God to see the result. God already knows what's going to happen because he's told us here in chapter 20. But it is a a testing so that man himself can see how miserably he fails in every kind of situation. So, And also throughout eternity, no angel... And no human being will ever, ever be able to accuse God of not giving men a chance to prove themselves worthy of heaven apart from Jesus Christ's atoning sacrificial death on their behalf for their sins. Well, let's look at Gog's monster, nope, not Gog's, the guilty monster removed, chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. a little season. You might even want to underline that word must because that's important. Well, John tells us here that an angel came down from heaven. This very well might be Michael. Oh, is it? Yeah. I'm ahead again. All right. This might be Michael because he is the one who was previously responsible for casting Satan out of heaven. Remember so it might be him now casting Satan out of earth. We don't know, but whoever this angel may be, he will bind Satan it tells us with a great chain and cast him into the bottomless pit.' We're going to shut him up there and then put a seal on him want us to make really you know absolute sure that he doesn't get out. So, And the reason is so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years would be fulfilled. Now, although we are not specifically told in this chapter here, we do know from other scriptures such as Isaiah 24, verses 21 and 22, that all the rest of the fallen angels, which we call demons, will also be bound with him at this time in the bottomless pit. Now, you know the bottomless pit is not... Here's where I have that picture. The lake of fire. It's not the same. The bottomless pit is not the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the final abode for all the ungodly, including Satan himself. He will end up there in this chapter. Later this morning, we can all say amen and rest in ease. He will be there. Um, It is the permanent lake of fire into which the false prophet and the Antichrist in our study have already been cast. They are already in their permanent place of torment. We saw that in uh, last week's chapter, Revelation 19, verse 20. Now, Satan is bound not only so that the millennium can be a perfect environment, But also so that God might conclusively, as we talked about, demonstrate to man his own personal responsibility, man's responsibility for his sin, for his own depravity. We know, of course, that Satan has been the originator of much of the evil in this world, but he cannot be charged with all of it. We cannot always use the excuse of Mother Eve, you know, that the devil made me do it. And Christ himself pointed this out when he was talking to his own men and telling them that the source of evil comes from within the heart of man. Mark 7, verses 21 and 23. Where does evil originate in us? From our own sin nature, our hearts. So Satan's binding will prove that environment does not affect man's heart because when Satan is loosed, as he will be in verse 7, at the end of the thousand-year kingdom, he is going to find, and this is so sad, but he is going to find a great many people who will be born during the kingdom to originally saved parents, yet they will be willing at a moment's call to join forces with him in order to rebel against Christ, the perfect king. Apart from receiving the new heart, you see, at the new birth, when a person is born again, Man is just exactly as Jeremiah said, man is desperately wicked. And apart from God's grace, he is totally incurable. And so it's for this purpose that Satan must be loosed a little season at the end of the millennium. And we'll talk more about that when we get to verse 7. Okay, moving right along here, let's go and look at the, uh, the glorified multitude reigns. And for this, we just look at verse 4. John says, verse 4, "...and I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years." Immediately after John saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet cast into the lake of fire, and then saw Satan bound in the bottomless pit, what did he see next? He saw thrones. And they who sat upon them had authority assigned to them to act as rulers and judges with Christ in his thousand-year kingdom. So we naturally would ask, well, who are these kingly judges? We know that 12 of them are going to be the Lord's disciples, his apostles. Paul taking the place of Judas Iscariot. Because the Lord said to them, And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed me, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. Doesn't that sound like a supper? Remember when we talked about the marriage supper in heaven or on earth? think it sounds like it's on earth to me he says and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel so 12 of these kingly Judges here in verse 4 are going to be the Lord's apostles. And it would also seem that the church age saints, remember now, who have already had their works or their service for Christ evaluated and rewarded at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ in heaven following the rapture of the church. They will have individual thrones of authority and judgment as part of their rewards that they have received unless, perhaps, they have been evaluated as undeserving of any reward, having had all their works burned up as wood, hay, or stubble. Now, this remarkable situation of the church saints ruling and judging with the Lord Jesus Christ and his twelve apostles is promised to us in many scriptures. Not only directly, but also by way of parables that were given by the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, 1 Corinthians 6.2 tells us, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? We're not judging the world now, are we? And we won't be in the tribulation. When will we judge the world? In the millennial kingdom. Also, if you remember, those of you who were with us for our eight year study on the life of Christ, the parable of the pounds and also the parable of the talents, both of those parables given by the Lord Jesus Christ teach that realms of authority will be assigned to church saints in proportion to their service, their faithfulness to Christ. Now, although I do not believe that the church saints are going to be involved in either the judgment of the nation of Israel or the judgment of the nations, the judgment of the Gentiles, we may very well be spectators of these judgments. We're not going to be the judge of those because Christ is the judge of both of those particular judgments. But our participation as kingly judges will be in the millennial kingdom itself as we serve under the king of kings where his you know subordinate kingly judges over the nations the church saints will be over the nations who will be over the 12 tribes of Israel the apostles the 12 apostles he told them that they would rule over the, they will help him rule over the house of Israel and you and I because the church is primarily gentile we will be helping him to rule over the gentile nations Yet, as I just mentioned, there are going to be these two major judgments, the judgment of the house of Israel and the judgment of the house of nations. And this is as good a time as any to talk to you about them because this is when they occur. Did you realize that according to Daniel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, there are going to be 75 days in between the end of the tribulation, or I should say the Lord's glorious appearing, and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Did you know that? You can calculate in those verses. I don't have time to get into it right now. What? Yeah, well i don't have time i wish i did but if you read those verses 11 and 12 of daniel chapter 12 and add do your little additions you'll find out that there are 75 days in between and part of this part of the reason is because the lord has a lot to do in those 75 days before he establishes his kingdom and i'll be talking about now what some of those things are after the satanic trinity and all of the fallen demons have been bound in the bottomless pit The next event on the Lord's schedule is going to be the judgment of the house of Israel. He judges Israel before the Gentile nations because Israel always comes first. In the Olivet Discourse, which again, you know, we always go back to there, so if you've never studied it, you need to. Matthew 24 and 25... We are given the chronology of the end times. If you want to turn there right now, this might be a good time to look at it. This goes hand in hand with what we have been looking at in Revelation. And again, this is such a positive refute of any position other than premillennialism that I just can't imagine why all people aren't premillennialists. If you take the Word of God for what it says. Anyway, first of all, this is the Lord speaking when his disciples asked him what shall be the signs of his coming, his second coming. Well, they didn't know it was the second coming at that point, but what shall be the signs of his coming and the end of the age? Well, he started out in verses 4 to 26 of chapter 24 of Matthew by describing the tribulation period, and it went right along with what we were studying in Revelation. He even had it divided between the beginning of sorrows, the first three and a half years, which he mentions in verse 8 there, and also the last three and a half years, called the Great Tribulation, which he mentions in verse 21. What divided those two? The abomination of desolation. There you can read about it in verse 15, right in the middle. Now, following the tribulation, if you looked at look at verses 27 to 30 of Matthew 24, he speaks about his second coming. Alright, so following the tribulation, then the Lord comes back to earth. Now look at verse 31. This event, the Lord's second coming, is then followed by the regathering of Israel from the four corners of the world. Not every Jewish person is going to be in Israel at the time of the Lord's second coming. Many of them are going to be scattered around the earth. So when he comes at his second coming, he's going to send his holy angels, it tells us in verse 31, and gather all of Israel to probably the border of Israel. Talk about that in a minute. So that he can then have what is called the judgment on the house of Israel. And this judgment is pictured for us in the parable of the ten virgins. And that comes next after he talks about the parable of the fig tree. Look at chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. We have the parable of the ten virgins. You know, five had oil in their lamps, five didn't. That's not a parable about the church. It's a parable about Israel. Also, you can get that tape, that study if you want to. I think it was Lesson 140 in the Life of Christ. Very interesting. Many people interpret that parable totally wrong. Then what comes after the judgment of the house of Israel is the judgment of the nations. And for this, right again, chronologically following, we have it in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, also known as the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Another parable which is oftentimes misunderstood, misinterpreted. All right, now you can go back to Revelation 20. So the future judgment program... Aside from the judgment of the satanic trinity and all the fallen angels, will begin with a judgment on the house of Israel, the nation of Israel. And this judgment must be instituted in order to determine the saved Jews from the unsaved Jews. Because as Romans 9, 6 tells us, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. The Jewish people who will have survived the tribulation will be, as I said, gathered by the holy angels from all over the world, and they will be brought to a place probably at the border of Israel. Many people believe it will be at Kadesh Barnea, and there's good reason for that, which I don't have time to get into, but it's in your notes. Israel as a nation will be saved, right? Romans 11:26. 26. All Israel shall be saved. Israel as a nation will be saved, but not all individual Jews across the whole earth will be saved. And those who are not saved will not be permitted to enter into the millennial kingdom. Ezekiel wrote this, speaking for the Lord. He said, And I will bring you, this is speaking to Israel, out from the people, the Gentiles, and gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm, and I will cause you to pass under the rod. That speaks of judgment. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel. That's one reason we say it's not in Israel. This judgment will take place at the border of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. This is one of many scripture passages from the Old Testament which tell us that there will be a judgment of the house of Israel. Now, following the judgment of Israel, and by the way, as I said, that parable of the ten virgins speaks about this judgment, all right? It is not a parable about the church lesson 140 if you want to study that in more detail following the judgment of the house of israel will be the judgment of the nations or the judgment of the gentiles or the judgment of the sheep and goats and we did a study on this the whole lesson was devoted to it lesson number 141 of the life of christ if You want to learn more. This will be the Lord's judgment of all the living Gentiles who have survived the tribulation and are, you know, living in their human bodies at the time of his second coming. The basis, and these, both of these judgments are going to occur in that 75 interval period, okay, between his second coming and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. The basis for this judgment, this judgment of the sheep and the goats, or the Gentiles, will be one's treatment of the Lord's brethren. And who are the Lord's brethren? The Jewish people. In other words, the basis for this judgment of the sheep and the goats, the Gentile peoples, will be one's treatment of the Jewish people during the tribulation period. Now, as we have already learned back in Revelation chapter 7, God will seal a believing remnant of 144,000 male virgins to be witnesses to who? the Gentiles during the seven horrible years of the tribulation period. A great multitude of Gentiles will be redeemed through the witness of these 144,000 Jewish um, evangelists. And many of these Gentile saints, as we have studied, will be martyred during the tribulation. Some of them by the, the false church the harlot church and others by the antichrist forces at the time of the lord's return all gentiles they'll also be gathered together for this judgment they will be judged on their basis the basis of their treatment of these 144,000 jewish witnesses or any other jewish people who may have come their way During the tribulation to give them the gospel message. Now make sure you understand that this does not mean that this is a judgment for salvation, which is based on works. Because we know that the Lord Jesus Christ would not contradict his own scripture. And as we very well should know by this point in time, nowhere in the Bible is salvation offered on a works basis, nor is one's eternal destiny. Based on a works basis, or determined on a works basis. So then what do these words mean when the Lord Jesus says, um, speaking in this parable, this is in Matthew 25... He refers to himself as the king. He says this, And the king shall answer and say unto them, the sheep on his right hand, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And then he shall answer them, which is the goats on his left hand, and say, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's in Matthew 25. Verses 40 and 45 and 46. What does he mean? Well, the living Gentiles will be judged on their basis, on the basis of their reception or their rejection of the gospel message which will have been preached to them by the Lord's brethren during the tribulation period. Those who accept the gospel, you see, will accept the messenger. And they will give them food and drink and take care of them, provide for their needs. On the other, other hand, those who do not accept the gospel will reject the messenger, and they will not aid him with food or help him if he is sick or in prison, go and visit him during the tribulation period when the Antichrist will be persecuting the Jewish people like they have never seen persecution before, I mean with full satanic force and when he will probably have made it uh, a worldwide mandatory commandment that anybody who is found aiding uh, any of these Jewish witnesses that that they will just have to be immediately arrested and sentenced to death You see, during a time like that, only a truly saved Gentile is going to risk his own life in order to reach out in kindness to a Jewish evangelist. So this then is why the Lord King, who is Christ himself, will invite the sheep on his right hand. To inherit the kingdom because their works of kindness to the Jewish people during the tribulation will be evidence of their true salvation. You see, it's just evidence that they truly are saved. So he will say to them, inherit the kingdom, while he will say to the goats on his left hand who would not reach out and help the Jewish people during the tribulation. He will say, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, in the second half of Revelation 4.20, um, no, not 4.20, 24, 24, John wrote that he saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. Now, this is speaking about tribulation saints, and it says, and they lived, you might want to underline that word, lived, and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Another important event which will take place at the time of the Lord's second coming and prior to the beginning of the millennial kingdom, in other words, during these 75 days of interval, another important event is going to be the resurrection, not only of the deceased tribulation saints. Now, their souls were in heaven, right? When they were martyred, their souls immediately went to heaven, and they probably returned with the, with the Lord at His time of his second coming. I don't know exactly when they receive their resurrected bodies. It will be like their rapture, okay? It could very well be as the Lord is returning that they receive their resurrected bodies. But it is going to be sometime from his second coming and before the millennial kingdom that all the tribulation saints who have given their lives for their faith... We'll we'll be resurrected. That's why it says, and they lived. I mean, we know they were living because their souls were under the altar, remember? They were living, but this means they lived in their bodies. They received their resurrected bodies. And also, it doesn't say specifically here unless it's a reference to the first part where it says those that were beheaded. That may be a reference to the Old Testament saints, but we know that it is also at this time that all the Old Testament saints, you know, Adam, Abraham, David, Moses, all those wonderful guys, they will also be resurrected. Their bodies will come out of their graves and be reunited with their souls. So between sometime between the two, the second coming and the beginning of the millennial kingdom I should do this for you guys shouldn't I <laughs> The Old Testament saints and all the deceased tribulation saints will have their bodies resurrected. And it tells us um, that they will reign with Christ during the kingdom. So we know also that between these 75 days, the Lord Jesus will have to have a judgment for them. A judgment just like we had at the judgment seat of Christ. He will have a, a, like a let's term it this way, a reward ceremony. They will receive their rewards just like we did at the Bema seat. They will have a judgment, and then they will reign during the kingdom according to their proportion of faithfulness for the Lord Jesus, or for God, you know, before they even knew who Jesus was. They looked forward to him but didn't know. So do you follow all that? So can you see what's going to happen between the time of his second coming and the millennial kingdom? Not only does he have to remove the satanic trinity, put the two guys in the lake of fire and Satan in the bottomless pit, have all that taken care of and judge the fallen angels as well. But then he's going to have to gather all the living Jews of the world in order to separate the wicked from the righteous and allow just the um, the righteous to go into the kingdom. All the unrighteous will have their... They will be killed and their souls will go to Hades. And then he's going to have to do the same thing with all the living Gentiles, with the judgment of the nations or the judgment of the sheep and goats. And then he will also need to reverse the curse on the earth, remember? (laughs) The curse, he's going to have to undo that and resurrect the Old Testament and all the deceased tribulation saints and judge their works and assign them their positions of responsibility during the kingdom. Well, in addition to all of that, the Lord Jesus Christ is also going to have to administrate the cleanup operation on planet Earth because can you imagine the condition this planet's going to be in after the tribulation so you see he has a lot to do between those in those 75 days I would hate to have to do what the Lord has to do in 75 days, of course he could do it in one second if he wanted to because he's got alright, we're going to run out of time if I don't move on, let's look at the grand mighty resurrection All right, I'm not going to read it yet But this is verses 5 and 6. In Job, the book of Job, J-O-B, which is the oldest book in the Bible written even before Moses penned the Pentateuch, the question is asked, if a man die, shall he live again? Now, there is no single question which has ever been more seriously considered by man than this question. An instinct... A desire and a longing for a life after death is very deeply seated in the conscious nature of man. Because of the fact that man does possess this instinct for eternal life, there must be an eternity to answer that natural instinct. Scripture tells us that it is God who has set eternity within the human heart. Just as... A migratory bird sees the vision of his native land regardless of where it might have been born. So does the heart of man naturally reach out toward eternity. Man of all the animal kingdom alone asks this question and seeks for eternal life or, you know, believes that there is eternal life. God would not plant the holiest of all instincts, into the human soul and then permitted to utterly mislead that soul. So God has given a reality of an eternal afterlife to satisfy the instinct for immortality that he himself planted into man. In other words, what am I saying? There is a life after death. However, only for the child of God, only for the born-again Christian, will immortality and eternal life be a blessing. For those who have refused to willingly become his obedient children, immortality and eternal life, which are also theirs, the unsaved also will live forever, but it will be a curse for them. And this is what we have in view in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter. The two resurrections, one unto life and one unto damnation. So let's look at those verses now. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The rest of the dead that you see mentioned here in verse 5 refers to the unsaved men and women from all the ages whose souls currently are imprisoned in Hades, the unseen world. The phrase that says they lived... Not again until the thousand years were finished. That means that they will not receive their resurrected bodies until after the thousand-year kingdom is over, when they will then appear before the great white throne judgment, which we're going to discuss also in this lesson. The resurrection of all unbelievers will occur at this same time, and it will be a resurrection unto damnation, which was distinguished itself by by the lord jesus christ himself from the resurrection unto life so now for the very first time in the scripture we discover that the completion of the first resurrection the resurrection unto life is separated from the second resurrection which is the resurrection unto damnation these two are separated by how many years one thousand years When the Old Testament saints and the deceased tribulation saints have their souls joined together with their resurrected bodies at the end of the tribulation, at the time of the Lord's second coming, this completes the first resurrection, which occurs in more than one stage. Okay, I don't have a lot of time to tell you. It started with Christ. He was the first fruits, And then there were those who came out of their graves at the time of his resurrection. Then there was the rapture of the church. Then there was the rapture of the two mighty witnesses. And then there is going to be the rapture, we could call it that, of all the deceased tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints, which will occur at the time of the Lord's second coming. There will also be a rapture of all living millennial saints, and that will happen at the time of the end of the millennium. I know this gets really confusing, but praise the Lord you have notes to read. (laughs) Now, verse 6, that's all I'm going to say. Well, the second resurrection follows the millennial kingdom, okay? And it it is a very simple one. It is just the bodily resurrection. There you go. Of all the unsaved, they, they get resurrected all at once. Everybody unsaved from all ages, get res, they get resurrected at the end of the millennial kingdom. Then they go before the great white throne judgment and then into the lake of fire. Verse 6 gives us the fifth beatitude in the, the book of Revelation. Remember, there's a total of seven. This one essentially says that those who have part in the first resurrection are blessed. Aren't they? Yes. I mean, that's putting it mildly. They are definitely blessed because they will be eternally happy and holy, and they are delivered from the power of the second death. You see, just as there are two resurrections, The first of the saved and the second of the unsaved, there are also two deaths. The first is physical death, that's when our bodies go into their graves. The second is far worse, because the second is the second death, and that is spiritual separation from God forever and ever. The second death is being cast into the lake of fire. So blessed are those who experience the first resurrection, right? Blessed are ye if ye are saved. And if you are not, please come see me today after this lesson. All right? take that, Get that taken care of. Even if you have a doubt about it, come and see me. Or Terry or your leader. All right, let's look at Gog's momentary revolt, verses 7 to 10. This is just incredible but let's read about it, it's so sad it says in verse 7, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, out of the bottomless pit, and shall go out to deceive the nations, still at work isn't he, which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea Hmm. and they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed. The camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. One of the most incredible commentaries on the fallen nature of Man, the depraved nature of man, I think, is found in this passage right here. As we mentioned earlier, after 1,000 years of a perfect, perfect human environment, you know, the utopia on earth for which man have always dreamed, where men will not only have abundant material provisions, but abundant spiritual instruction as well from Christ himself and the Holy Spirit, And where there will be no war, no crime, no satanic or demonic influence, no temptation to do evil from outside sources, where there will be the personal presence of all the resurrected saints of all the ages. I mean, just imagine somebody living in their human body in the millennial kingdom could walk up to Moses and have a conversation with him. And where also there will be the presence of all the holy angels... And you could go up to Michael and have a conversation with him. And who else? Even Christ himself will be there for men to commune with and to learn from. And where all wonderful things will exist and where there is no threat of disease or any kind of handicap or sickness or physical or mental disabilities or any threat of death itself, unless, you know, it would be for overt sin. In spite of all these things, yet there will still be a multitude of men and women who will be born during the kingdom age who will refuse to internally submit their wills to Christ. You see, although outwardly obedient from fear of death, they know if they weren't outwardly obedient, they'd be put to death, yet many will chafe inwardly under the iron the rule of iron um the rod of iron rule of the lord jesus christ remember we're told he's going to rule with a rod of iron well many will chafe under that they won't like that why should we do things his way we want our will because they're still going to be born in human bodies they're still going to be born with the uh, satanic nature no the adamic nature they can't blame satan for this, you see. So they will be ready almost in an instant. This is incredible, but this is God wants to show man the depravity of his own heart. They will be ready in an instant to rebel against their king, the king of kings, Christ, the moment that they are given the opportunity, which they will be given when, who is unbound? Satan. And it will be God himself, by the way, who will give the command to loose Satan. Satan will not escape. God will have him loosed. Remember, God has his purpose for this loosing. And that's why it says in verse 3 that Satan must be loosed a little season. All generations of people born during the millennial kingdom must also, you see, Be confronted with a clear-cut choice, just as all other people in all other ages have been confronted with the same choice. During the kingdom, people will not have a choice as to whom they can willingly, who they can serve. At least outwardly, they will not have a choice because it will be mandatory in the kingdom to serve the Lord Jesus and to be obedient to him. So Satan must be loosed so that all the millennial-born people are given the free opportunity to choose to trust their Lord and Savior in Jerusalem or to rebel against him with Satan. Therefore, there needs to be this final test so as to allow men the free choice that men of all other ages have also had. And this will prove to men... The, the condition of their own hearts. I mean, some might even be in doubt whether they truly are saved. And when Satan is loosed, they'll go one way or the other. This will, you know, cut the line between the genuinely saved and the unsaved. So this will be mankind's last test, his last great test. In all previous ages, men have used environmental problems such as poverty or war or... Uh, improper education or sickness or whatever whatever their excuse might be for their problems they have used these excuses and the majority of men have never admitted that their problem stems from their own hearts from their own sinful nature but with all of these possible excuses eliminated during the thousand-year kingdom here on earth nothing can be blamed for man's depravity except his own sinful condition his own sinful heart well when the kingdom is over the time of confinement and torture in the bottomless pit will not have changed the old devil one single bit. As a matter of fact, I imagine those thousand years he spent planning on how he could, if he'd only have, would have one more chance, he could probably figure out a way that he could defeat Christ. So he's probably making his little schemes for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. And upon his release, he immediately will resume his old strategy of deception in order to enlist human allies in his one more attempt to try to defeat Christ. So he will emerge from the pit with his own prideful heart even more full of hatred. I mean, he'll even hate Christ more for what he's done to him for a thousand years. And this hatred will flame forth to kindle a revolution among as many people as he can enlist from the nations of the four corners of the earth to his own purposes. Now remember, after a thousand years, no death, no sickness, no problems, no deformities, no abortions, the earth will have greatly repopulated itself. And so we are told that Satan will actually be able to gather together a huge number as the sand of the sea. I mean, that is a lot of people who are going to be chafing inwardly against Christ. I just cannot imagine, but the Word of God says it, so I believe it. Now, this enterprise here of Satan will be allowed by divine permission. Christ will know about it, of course, right? I mean, he told us about it here in his word. We know about it even a thousand years before it's going to happen. But he will not stop it until every rebel heart has joined Satan's cause. He'll know about it, but he won't stop it. Needing human leadership... As Satan always does, because he's a spirit being, he's going to need humans to uh, put, pull this thing off. He is going to find that the most receptive people will be among those ancient enemies of the Lord and the Lord's people. And that will be Gog and Magog, which happens to be in the land of Russia. This land and people will have become strong and prosperous once again, like all the other nations will have in the millennial kingdom. And these new people of Magog and their Gog leader will be found by Satan to be the ripest to rebel with him in one last effort against the Lord. And so these, these, the Magog people and their Gog leader will be the ones who will help round up all the rebels of the whole world for this one final event. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us how much time this final rebellion will consume, but it does tell us that it will happen after the thousand-year kingdom. It will happen after Satan is loosed from the bottomless pit. But the wording of this rebellion does suggest that it will take place very quickly. Gog and Magog will send their agents everywhere over the face of the earth. And then the rebels will swarm together from every direction to surround, it says, the camp of the saints and the beloved city. In other words, they'll come from all over the world, just kind of like they did at the Battle of Armageddon, except this time they will surround the city of Jerusalem where Christ himself will be living with all the resurrected saints. You and I will be there. We won't be there for the Battle of Armageddon, but we'll be there for this one. And then, with his greatest gift of all, his perfect kingdom on earth, under the reign of his perfect king, his own son, with his greatest gift being rejected by multitudes of those who had lived in this perfect, perfect environment and who yet willfully choose Satan over the Lord Jesus Christ, God will bring down the curtain, and he'll bring it down big time. The end of verse 9 says that God himself is going to send fire down from heaven to devour every rebel in a single instant. Every last unregenerate human being will be engulfed in flames and burned to death in the surging sea of flames sent by Jehovah God who will be giving them just a foretaste of the eternal fate that their resurrected bodies will suffer in the lake of fire. And then in verse 10, we have recorded for us the once for all, the final once and for all end of the great deceiver who will have deceived himself most of all, Satan, who at one point in time was the highest and the most beautiful angel of all of God's creation. Lucifer, the rebellious son of the morning, the one who had wanted to exalt his throne above God's throne, the great blasphemer and murderer from the beginning and the father of liars and the old serpent, the accuser of the brethren, the devil who was symbolized to us as a great red dragon. He will finally and forever, never to be loosed, be cast into the lake of fire and he will join the beast the antichrist and the false prophet who will already have been there in the lake of fire for 1000 years and yet not have been annihilated it says where the beast and the antichrist are so anybody who believes that the lake of fire just puts one into annihilation they are wrong they are still there they're still alive suffering Okay, now let's go to the great white throne judgment. For this, let's look at verses 11 to 15. This is godless man's reckoning. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, In these verses here, we have the fulfillment of Hebrews 9.27, where it says, It is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. But after this, the judgment. The great white throne judgment is where all unsaved will appear after the millennium. Now, many Bible scholars believe that it will be at this time that the... I had a picture of that before, but that the earth and its atmosphere will be burned up and destroyed by fire, as it tells us in 2 Peter 3, verses 7 to 13. Because verse 11 here says that the earth and heaven, that speaks of the atmospheric heavens around the earth, fled away and there was found no place for them. So it would seem, then, that the great white throne judgment is going to take place after the earth is dissolved and prior to the creating of the new heaven and the new earth, which is going to take place. Um, so the great white throne judgment will take place probably in space somewhere. Now, here's what I believe happens. If you notice, that in, um, when God ends that battle, that last great rebellion, what does it say? How does he do it? He sends down fire from heaven, right? To devour all the rebels who are as the sand of the the sea. And then we read about the great white throne judgment where it says that earth and the heaven fled away. And the next thing we read about after the great white throne judgment is, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. So what I think happens is that when God sends that fire down from heaven to destroy all the rebels... That is when he destroys planet Earth, the Earth that you and I know. And that's why the great white throne judgment is, takes place in space. It is not the royal throne of heaven. It's, as this artist drew, it's, we don't know where it will take place. It won't take place here on Earth because the Earth will be destroyed. It will be burned up. Now, all the living, saved millennial saints... At the moment he sends that fire, I believe that's when they receive their resurrected bodies and are with all the rest of us, and we immediately go into the new heaven and the new earth. We'll be in the new Jerusalem so that you don't have to worry about all the saved millennial saints getting burned up. They won't. They'll be instantly in a glorified body. I hope you follow me there. Well, so anyway, this great white throne judgment is not a judgment for a trial. This is not when men, unsaved men are going to stand before God to have a trial to see if they're saved or not saved. The trial is already over. John 3.18 says, He that believeth on him, Christ, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is what? Condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So this is not a trial. Um, it's a sentencing the only ones standing there will be unsaved they're already sentenced to eternity in hell so this will involve all the unsaved dead those who are dead in their sins and they will be both we include both the great and the small that means great and the small you know financially positionally politically intellectually whatever way you want divine judgment is no respecter of persons everybody unsaved whether they were a very very good person Basically, as we would say, you know, your Aunt Susie, who was a real nice person and loved her children but was unsaved, she will be there right along with the Antichrist and Hitler and the worst people you can think of. And then the books will be open. And as the Lord told his disciples in Luke 8:17, nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. These books, these registers of deeds will testify against every man that he is indeed a sinner. No mouth will be able to utter an excuse or say a word. All mouths will be shut. Everyone will be shown to be a sinner. Everything they ever did in their lives will be on those books. And there will be none that had perfect lives, as we know, because there's only been one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the books there. And then there will be another book open, which is this one here in front, which is called what? The Book of Life. And when the name of the man or the woman the, the young person who is standing before God when their name is not found in this book which it will not be because God makes no mistakes then regardless of their works you know even some done in his name there'll be this is when many will say Lord, Lord but didn't I do this in your name and didn't I do this wonderful work and didn't I go to church many of them will not have their names there and they will be eternally lost you see without one's name being in the book of life there is no hope of heaven forever and ever so on the one hand there is going to be the register of Of all the undeniable sins of every individual, and really one sin, one little lie would send them to hell. But all the sins will be there. And on the other hand, there will be no writing of their name in the book of life. The judgment of unbelievers works. You say, well, why even bother with judging their works then? Well, the judgment of their works will determine the degree of their punishment in the lake of fire. All of them will be condemned to the eternal lake of fire. No one will escape. But the Bible does teach us that there is a difference in the degrees of punishment. None of them are pleasant, but there are degrees. And there are many passages in the Word of God which teach us that men will be judged according to their works. Revelation 20, verse 13 indicates that no matter where their bodies may have found their final rest, you know, whether it's in the sea or wherever, wherever they found their final rest, all of their bodies of the unsaved will be raised. And this is the second resurrection that we talked about. The first resurrection, this is the second resurrection. So unbelievers will receive their eternal resurrected bodies, and it will be then in those bodies that they will experience the second death, which is being cast into the lake of fire and being separated forever and ever from God. And then death and hell, which are personified as enemies of God, will also be cast into the lake of fire, death and hell. No, There will be no more death. There will be no more need for hell because in the eternal state there will be no traces of sin at all. So these two things will not be needed any longer. So they're cast into the lake of hell. Well, the tragic thing, the very, very tragic thing is that no one would ever have to go to this lost world of eternal torment because sufficient provision has been made for every person ever born to have been delivered. Here's a wonderful picture of this up here. How it, what is the way of deliverance? By the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But because they willingly fought against the revelation of God which we have in front of us, by ignoring it or by refusing to submit to his will or by disregarding the pleadings of the Holy Spirit and rejecting the one to whom he was pointing, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning death for their sins. And because men refuse to accept his deliverance from the second death, then they can never blame God for sending them to the lake of fire. It will have been their own doing. God is doing, God has done, and God will continue to do all that an infinite God can possibly do through a million agencies of his mighty grace to keep men from going to the lake of fire. You know, it is not his will that any man should perish. He didn't even create this place for man, did he? It was created for the devil and his, the angels that followed him. So one day when men find themselves there, because it is a reality, when they find themselves there, they and they alone will have themselves to blame. You know, the Lord Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he will be saved. And Luke wrote in the book of Acts, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we are must be saved. So how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The answer is we won't. Let's pray. Father, this has been both a triumphant chapter and it has also been a tragic chapter triumphant, of course, for those who have trusted in Christ and who will enter into this utopian paradise of the millennial kingdom to reign with him. But it's tragic, of course, for those who have refused to submit their wills to Christ and to acknowledge his sacrificial death on their behalf because they will be raised bodily only to suffer eternal separation from you. And from all that is good and all that is true and all that is light and all that is love and all that is grace and all that is so wonderful. Father, I pray so much that if there's one here today who has not trusted in you, that this lesson will just work at her heart and convict her until she does something about it and falls on her face before you, acknowledging that she is a sinner, that there will be records in those books that tell of her sins. And that Lord, today she would make sure, positively sure, that her name is going to appear in the book of life. How we will praise you, Lord! Help pride not to get in anybody's way, even if if they if others have thought maybe they've been a Christian for years. It's so much better to make sure and to get that resolved now before it's too late. Father, I pray that we will take these words of Christ seriously. And when he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that hears my words and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. I pray everyone in this room is saved and anyone who might ever hear this, even by a tape message, that they would truly take care of that and be born again by accepting Christ's death for their sin.